Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, and this week we will be talking to psychologist Jonathan Haidt about the power of speech. The American writer has made a stir by criticising the so-called culture wars engulfing American campuses. So I'm going to be asking what he makes of our own culture wars that seem to be setting in at Westminster. Um, first, though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's own Stephanie um, Boland. Um Steph, you keep a close eye on Westminster and on these questions of speech. Just how ugly has it got in recent weeks, do you think? I think a particularly striking moment was at the recent PMQs. I'm not sure if you watched it, where Diane Abbott stood up to speak on behalf of the Labour Party about death threats to MPs. And you might remember in Parliament recently there was... Um, quite a fraught and for, you know, for for my two cents, quite an upsetting debate um, over parliamentary language and how we talk about MPs that included Boris Johnson saying that um, Labour women who were talking about inflammatory language in the context of Joe Cox's murder were talking humbug. And he was urged to apologise off the back of that. And the theme came up again at PMQs, where Diane Abbott, who herself is no stranger to abuse, in fact, I think she receives the most online abuse of any MP, having the multiplier effect of being being black and being a woman. Um, she revealed that Paula Sheriff, who had that row with Boris Johnson, has received four pretty serious death threats since that row. Um, so it's very ugly at the moment. And what we're finding, I think, is that these moments of um, political anger in the chamber, moments where we talk about MPs as, as traitors or as set up against the people do have an effect. I mean, it is, a, it is a strange one, isn't it, in the sense that there are some figurative uses of language that are military that go right back, you know, I don't know, mentioned in dispatches or you always have briefings saying people should be taken out and shot and it's become such a cliche that no one takes that seriously. And um, likewise, stabbed in the back, there's a good example. Like if we were literally talking about someone being stabbed in the back, that would be very upsetting. But it's become such a cliche that it no longer even really brings the image to mind. 
it's where people vary the cliche that 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 it feels a lot more violent yeah i mean there's a couple of aspects to this i don't know if you saw the video political grime where a grime artist kind of took some of these phrases like jess phillips i'd stab him in the front about jeremy corbyn which as you say was intended to be allegorical um to highlight how violence does permeate our political language we can link to it under the podcast i mean the thing i'd say is that language always changes with context which sounds like a very banal point but taken out back and shot is no longer something I would use figuratively about an MP um, because we literally had an MP shot recently and the other issue though is things like language of traitors and of the people who are attempting to be undermined aren't necessarily just metaphors rooted in violence and militarization they're metaphors which directly draw on the language of political unrest mm. and they're trying to set up an us versus them context which is from the sphere of political unrest whatever degree that unrest is so i don't think it's unreasonable to therefore suggest that they could invoke political unrest or political violence um but i also wonder if part of this debate is a little bit of a red herring so many of our conversations about free speech go down to you know should somebody be allowed to say this thing or should they not or, oh, is this just normal rhetoric and spin? Or is it a, a threat to democratic norms? And I think there's got to be another way of looking at it where we can say, obviously, you're allowed to say these things. No, nobody's going to stop you. There's not going to be much in the way of formal consequence if you do say something very inflammatory or even violent. Mm. But is it decent and good speech? Is it the way you should talk about somebody? Is it the way we should be characterising representatives or talking about women in our political system? Um, and there's a there's a moral argument <laughs> that you can make without having to divide everything into permissible and impermissible speech. And you might hope there'd be a um, political argument as well, which is if someone's crass and deliberately offensive, they might pay a price at the ballot box. Well, we'll see. Um, we will indeed. But the other place, of course, that this comes up is very much universities. Jonathan Hayter, who we'll be talking to soon, um, is very concerned that the rising generation of students see harm and danger in all kinds of language um, rather than just something that doesn't sound very nice. Um, uniquely in the office, you're actually teaching in a university at the moment, Steph. Um, do you Are you aware of a kind of generation golf i mean you're pretty young yourself but you're not as young as some of the students um like um you know do you think that they are getting much more offended than they would have been 10 years ago when you were an undergraduate well i teach in quite a different context to the environment jonathan haters in um but i don't really see it playing out that same way so i teach on a master's course at birkbeck so my students are you know, a range of different ages. It's very international classroom. They bring a lot of different perspectives, life experience, other jobs into the room. Um, and I find them very eager to debate and we teach journalism. So we get into questions of free and permissible speech. And even on that, they have a, a range of different opinions. Um, the main thing I see that's different between myself and students at, at undergraduate level now, 10 years on, is that they seem to be very anxious and a lot more concerned about what job they're going to come into when they graduate and whether or not their degree result is going to be okay and how they're getting on on campus. We know we have a student mental health crisis in this country that universities are, are now trying to address and some of the measures are working and some really aren't. Um, so when I look at the 19-year-olds who I'm teaching, my 
main worry about them is um are they are they okay <laughs> graduating into a a pretty tricky economic climate and a difficult environment in which to be a young person at the moment so you think there is a certain fragility even if it's not necessarily related to a kind of crazy overreaction to language her lesser fragility and more that they are in the set of circumstances quite different to mine 10 years ago um even though i graduated into a recession you know i'm kind of middle class and i felt very confident that it was going to be fine and i think now students are in such a era of hyper scrutiny and of um you know, complex relationships to the internet and feeling very hyper-visible and also very aware of how difficult a world, both economically and in terms of, you know, these these tangled politics that we talk about, they're going to be graduating into. So I don't think they're fragile. I think in a lot of cases they're doing, you know, incredibly um, powerful and striking things. But I think I had it easier and that was only 10 years ago. Well, there we are. Let's um, go over now and see what Jonathan Haight has to say about some of that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by the social psychologist, author, and for some, provocateur, Jonathan Haidt, who this summer made the top five when our readers voted on the world's top 50 thinkers. Welcome, Jonathan. Well, thank you, Tom. (laughs) Now, some of your recent work has been on US campus politics, uh, John, and um, which can seem rather remote most of the time from life in Britain but just now with our controversial new Prime Minister Boris Johnson we've got an American style culture walk almost deliberately being stoked. Uh, Yes it certainly looks that way from from my side of the Atlantic. Um, The I'm fairly used to coming over to Europe and kind of uh, apologizing for the ridiculous state of American politics. And uh, uh, and now at least I get to come over to Europe and it feels more like we're all in the same in the same boat. It's it's happening in a lot of countries. Um, 
So with Johnson specifically, um, liberals have been accusing him an awful lot of stirring up division with his fighting talk, whereas he pops up and says, no, 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 you'd be impoverishing the language if you weren't allowed me my military metaphors about surrender bills and collaborators and all the rest of it. Do you think there's going to be an obvious winner in that kind of a political battle? Well, it's hard to know about winners, but I think we can talk about the contradictory games that are being played at any one time. And if you go out onto the field and one side is playing soccer and the other side is playing tackle football, um, it, it, there's a lot of incoherence. Um, in politics, there, there there's a zero-sum uh, there's a zero-sum, only one side can win dynamic before elections. And then there's supposed to be a long period of governing in which compromises can be made. And that's the way it was in the United States until the 1990s. Um, but since then, in part because of changes in the media and then rising political polarization, it's become more electoral politics, zero-sum, no compromise all the time, uh, which leads to gridlock. To bring back, to bring this back to uh, Boris Johnson, um, he seems to certainly be a man on a mission. That mission is to get Brexit through no matter what, and he uh, doesn't seem to be attending very much to the other aspects of leadership, which often involve trying to bring the country together. I can't pass judgment on 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 him on uh, right now, but um, yeah, he does seem to be committed by hook or by crook to getting this through. In terms of how serious or not this issue of the language um, around Brexit is, because at one level you think, good God, there's big decisions coming up and we're arguing about words instead of policies. But at another level, some of the Labour MPs who were very upset with remembering their friend um, Joe Cox, who actually was murdered on the on the streets in the, in the north of England not so long ago by a right-wing fanatic. Um, do you think these words about surrender bill, collaborators and deliberate stoking of tribes by a political leader like could actually lead to deeper real social division in the country or do you think it's more out there already and they're kind of reflecting it well you know coming from the american context where we have a president who tells people to go back to their countries and then calls some countries shithole countries and then says all sorts of absurd and outrageous things uh you're arguing over a surrender bill uh, which is kind of where we were with language in the 1990s. Um, in the 1990s, uh, there was a man named Frank Luntz who was a Republican pollster and who urged the Republicans to adopt certain ways of speaking, like the the inheritance tax. He said, don't call it an inheritance, inheritance tax, call it a death tax. Then it really feels wrong. So uh, nobody really thought this is a violation of democracy. This was just clever, uh, you know, clever persuasive techniques. And so if that's what's going on here, this doesn't strike me as a threat to democracy. It just strikes me as um, as a level of political strategy and manipulation, which seems within the bounds of normal politics. Now, suspending the parliament, I mean, my God, from, <laughs> you know, uh, that was quite shocking. I, uh, to, when, when the parliament is being suspended for a narrow tactical move to be concerned about a, a, a verb here and there uh, doesn't seem to me quite where the focus should be. Now, moving from um, the student-style politics at Westminster to real student politics for a minute, in your book with um, Greg Lukianov, uh, John, you um, highlight some quite extraordinary um, campus antics. Maybe antics is too light a word. No, that, that's a good word, yeah. Oh, too light a word, yes. Yeah, in <laughs> Evergreen College or whatever it was called. First question I'd ask, though, is, haven't students always done very silly things sometimes? I mean, here we had a quiz show, University Challenge, and 
team famously went on and just answered Trotsky to every answer and, and every question they were asked. Yeah, there are waves of in which students are more politically active. And there was a big one in the 60s. There was a smaller one in the 1990s. And then there's another one now. And since they often involve similar issues around justice or social justice, you might say, well, isn't this similar to previous ones? But it's different in a lot of ways. The main way is that in previous waves, students were saying, this is wrong, this is outrageous, we want to no platform this person. So that's constant. But the difference is this time, they're saying, because it will be dangerous, because uh, people will suffer, people will die. Um, there's a notion of fragility that is new. And that's what led Greg to come to me uh, in 2014 when he noticed students doing this for the first time. So the wave of uh, efforts to stop speakers was premised on a notion of student fragility, which was brand new. We'd never seen that before. And that came in in 2014, just as the wave of depression and anxiety was hitting Gen Z. Uh, that is, uh, students who were born in 1996 and later. And if they are more depressed, anxious, and also more fragile in the kind of, the, you know, the, the, the insult is the, the snowflake generation. Um, how far do you think that's just something that's in the ether? And how far might it just be because of quite obvious kind of material conditions that, you know, the rising generation are not looking forward to incomes and home ownership rates and all those things that are better than their parents, which their parents mm -hmm. would certainly have done in respect of their own parents. Yeah, it, you know, it's plausible to say, oh, well, of course, they're depressed and anxious, global warming and the financial crisis and all of that. Uh, but but it doesn't that doesn't fit the fact that doesn't fit the pattern rather, I should say. So first, every generation faces existential threats. When I was growing up, there was a real serious risk of nuclear war, and we really had to plan for it. Uh, and we thought that the earth was going to be overpopulated and uninhabitable within within 50 years. Um, so every and there was a huge crime wave. We were actually in some danger, but yet we were still allowed outside to play. Um, life is incredibly safe now, and um, if it was a response to real dangers, uh, and especially if it was a response to financial f uh, problems, it would especially hit uh, the millennials. They're the generation that came out during the financial crisis. Mm. Instead, what we see, and, and so we've been tracking, I have a Google document at thecoddling.com, um, solutions, better mental health. Um, I have Google documents tracking all the published studies on depression and anxiety rates and suicide in many west in many english speaking countries at least and what we see is that the it all starts around 2012 2013 which doesn't make sense if the financial crisis was 2008 and it mostly hits the girls not the boys well the boys are doing worse but the girls are much worse and it wouldn't it wouldn't be clear why a market meltdown and financial conditions would especially hit the girls and it especially hits the preteen girls which again makes no sense if it's a financial issue what does make a lot more sense is between 2009 and 2011 uh, is when teen social life in the U.S. and Britain, Britain might be a year or two behind, but pretty similar. Um, in 2008, most kids were not on social media, and they would go over to each other's homes, and they would do things together after school. And in, by 2011, most of them were on social media every day, uh, and the girls were on much more than the boys, and there are other reasons why it affects girls more than boys. So the, the pattern of rising depression, anxiety, and self-harm exactly matches what you would expect if early exposure to social media, you know, at age 11 and 12, if that interferes with social development and self-esteem and happiness, it doesn't fit the pattern if you're thinking that it's the financial crisis or global warming. I mean, in a way, that's more frightening, isn't it, than a passing financial thing, because social media is kind of here to stay by the looks of things. Mm -hmm. And 
the whole currency of likes, number of friends, all these kind of visible markers, as well as people doubling down on identifying with one particular pack and hunting with it. All of those things aren't at the moment getting any better, are they? No, no, they're getting much, much worse, I would say. Um, uh, so early social media wasn't so bad. Early social media, there was Nap- uh, Friendster, MySpace, and then the Facebook or early Facebook. Those were just ways that you could sort of display yourself like, hey, look at my space. Here are the bands that I like. And, you know, that encourages superficiality and display, but that's not particularly toxic. Um, what I'm learning, I'm writing a paper now with Tobias Rose Stockwell, who, who knows social media much better than I do. And um, w- the story that we've come up with, the story, if you put it all together, is that it was pretty non-toxic before 2009. And then in rapid succession, Facebook creates the like button. Uh, then it begins ordering its news feed um, by algorithms so that it, it's organized by what, you're in, what you engage. Uh, Twitter puts on the retweet button in 2012. Facebook copies it with the share function. And then the uh, uh, Upworthy and other companies find ways to maximize the degree to which people will click by doing A-B testing on all their headlines and figuring out how to lure people in. And then in 2013, the news media adapts to this new environment in which you have to go through social media because it's harder to draw people to your site. So between 2009 and 2013, social media and the news industry reconfigure to give us the much more viral, outrage-inducing world that we know today. And in fact, everything begins to go haywire in 2014, well before Trump arrives. Donald Trump could never have been elected if we didn't have this much more toxic, viral, contagious social media from which he got essentially tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of free publicity. So what went wrong, um, wrong in inverted commas, before Trump in 2014-15? Yeah, so, uh, when, so when Greg came to me in 2014 and said, weird stuff is happening on campus, I don't understand it. And, you know, the request for trigger warnings and safe space and this new politicization of everything, of, of, you know, every word use, pronoun use. It really felt like, like, you know, like something had happened to the students, like there was a virus going around. And at first we thought, okay, it's just, this is something that universities are doing. And then we realized, no, no, it's not that the universities are causing this. It's that Gen Z arrived in 2014 and they were already depressed and anxious and fragile. So that's how we wrote up the, the, the book in particular. Um, but at, but we only after the book came out, the first version of the book came out in September 2018, only after it came out did we find data. There's been a lot of talk, a lot of data in the United States on how um, the Great Awakening happened in 2014. Do you use the word woke here? Do you have that word? It's just coming in, I'd say, in the last year or two. Okay. So, you know, woke people are really focused on social justice in a particular way. I mean, fighting for racial equality is great. I'm all in favor of diversity and inclusion, but there's a way of doing it which is incredibly vindictive, self-righteous, unforgiving, um, preening, cruel, frankly. And so this way... um, what we now know is that um, surveys of political attitudes in the United States show that in 2014, white people on the left go way to the left, uh, not black people and not white moderates or conservatives. Something happens to white people on the left in 2014. Their attitudes about immigration, inequality, uh, any issue about race go way to the left. And um, so that's one piece of evidence. And then secondly, there have been a lot of analyses in the last year of word use in the New York Times. And in 2014, word use of words like 
privilege, uh, inequality, um, all sorts of words related to wokeness um, also begin shooting up in 2014, 2015. So, uh, it, uh, so it's not it's not um, African Americans who are changing; it's white people on the left. And so, some people have taken to calling this the Great Awakening. Uh, it really was like a religious revival sweeping through um, through people on the left. And so, uh, what was happening on campus was not, I think, separate from what was happening in our larger culture war. Now, just to be clear, the right went insane in the 1990s and early 2000s. I'm not saying like, oh, the left radicalized. Isn't that terrible? You know, the for a variety of reasons, including Fox News. The Republican Party became a much further right and much uh, a party much more uh, um, welcoming to authoritarians and racists um, gradually in the early 2000s, or well, I should say the racism part is much more recent. But so the the, the right radicalized a while ago, uh, but now it looks like it's the left's turn, and this is giving us a much more polarized and frightening politics in the United States. We'll come back to the polarization in a second, but first of all, the the, the fragility. How do you see that as tying in with social media, if social media is at the root of all this? Mm -hmm. So think. So the key idea in the book, in the opening of the book, is that kids are anti-fragile. That is, um, you need to you need to have all kinds of experiences that that um, from which you learn from that toughen you up. You need failure and setbacks, things like that. So um, in the 1990s, we stopped giving kids a lot of freedom. We kept them in. We freaked out about child abduction. So we started raising kids that didn't have the normal strengths. They didn't develop the normal skills of social interaction from free play, from having conflicts. Um, this same generation of kids, um, uh, born around 1996, 97, the same generation of kids are the first kids in history to get on social media at the age of 10 or 11. Um, the millennials didn't get social media till they were in college. Till, you know, Facebook was only for university students at first. But suddenly the ages dropped to 13, and anybody can lie and just get an account. So my, my daughter is nine. Her friends in fourth grade at age nine, her friends mm -hmm. were getting uh, Instagram accounts. Nobody stops them. I, I mean, I stopped my daughter, but the parents don't, don't stop them. Um, so um, my point is, if you raise kids who already are lacking in the normal experiences that toughen them, and then when they're, when they're still in, in middle school, when they're still 10, 11 years old, developing social skills, you block normal development, and you put them in this weird space in which everybody is able to comment on everybody, and everybody is socially comparing. And we know that uh, adolescent girls are particularly vulnerable to, to ridiculous or unrealistic beauty standards. Um, it's a very difficult time for boys and for girls. And to suddenly make all the difficult parts harder, um, to supercharge the ability to do bullying and, and relational aggression, um, this particularly affects girls. And then the other big thing that um, you argue in the book is this idea that people are now entering into politics with the presumption that the world is divided into good people and evil people. So you, you see mm -hmm. social media is inflaming that as well, I presume. Oh yes, yes. So one thing so one thing to really keep in mind here, that something that keeps me sane and, and gives me at least a little bit of optimism, is that the great majority of people are perfectly reasonable and healthy. So this is true about Gen Z. The great majority of college students at top schools in the United States would like to hear multiple perspectives. They would like to read a variety of books. It's a relatively small number that is doing the the, the protesting and the shouting down. But Students and professors are afraid of this small, this small group of people. So it's a change in the dynamics. Similarly in politics, um, I've met a number of, of Congress people in the United States and, and members of parliament here, and they're almost always smart, decent people who generally go into politics because they want to make a difference. The problem isn't that they're raving 
you know, rabid maniacs. The problem is that they're put into a system in which if they show an ounce of, at least in the United States, if they show an ounce of openness to the other side, if they work together, if they say, well, you know, our side has to give something and your side has to, you know, if you do that, um, there are a lot of organizations that will publicize via social media their treason and call out the dogs against them and hurt their reelection chances. So um, it's not that human beings have gone insane. It's that the per, certain parameters of the system have changed to reward extreme behavior to give extremists on both sides uh, a much louder megaphone, which ends up frightening the moderates who go silent. Uh, and it, it's it's almost, you know, a metaphor that I use is like if God reached into the universe and just like doubled the gravitational constant mm. or to change the mass of the electron, mm. like all sorts of things would go haywire. And I think you that's certainly get this sense, don't you, that like an awful lot of time and energy try, go, turns on trying to catch people out on saying something. That's right. And, it, and it's about words. That's what's so weird and wasteful. Um, it's not even about deep ideas. It's so much of it is about words, often a single word, not even a phrase. It's often a single word. This is a colossal waste of everyone's time. Um, let's just go back further in, in your own work. Um, a few years ago, you wrote a very influential book called um, The Righteous Mind, in which you kind of contrast um, monochrome, if you like, social democratic or in American terms, liberal morality that only talks about um, equality and care with a much wide, richer range of emotions that other political viewpoints might have with things like honour being included. I think that book's 2012. In the last few years, do you think um, the left, it's certainly learnt to tap anger again, if you look at the Labour Party, has it also got itself into a slightly richer morality than it used to have? I think it depends a lot on the candidate. So uh, so I think Barack Obama, for example, was able to speak, especially as a candidate. As a candidate, he did a very good job of, of talking about American traditions and the founding fathers and, and personal responsibility. He said African-American men have to take more responsibility for, for their families and their kids. So he, he did and said a lot of things that I think allowed conservatives and moderates to say, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I like, I like what this guy is saying. Um, and there are a few candidates now. I think Pete Buttigieg, in our, if anyone's following the, the American primaries, there's a young man named Pete Buttigieg. He, he's a 36-year-old or so you know, gay man, uh, mayor of a small town. Uh, but he speaks beautifully, and he really expands the vocabulary about, about bringing us together, about, um, um, about traditions. Uh, so it, you know, and some people have told me he might have read, or at least he or his staffers seem to have read The Righteous Mind, because he can sort of like go down the line and hit all the foundations. So... I think that some you know, some political leaders are are able to speak to a broader broader set, but given the the radicalization now, of course, on the right, that includes a radicalization that welcomes authoritarians and overt racists. Um, so I think the Republican Party is in big trouble, uh, and is you know whenever however Trump ends after that, I think the Republicans will have a very hard time winning elections again because young people are so turned off by them now. Um, and the big question is, what's going to happen with the Democrats? Are the, is the moderate wing going to win, or is it going to be the more, the more far, you know, farther left? But wing? It, there's a distinction here, isn't there, between where you are on the moderate to left spectrum? Yeah. But you could be a kind of Clinton policy wonk who might care a lot about, like, you know, a bit of equality here and a bit of rewarding single mothers there, and have no interest or not be able to tap this vocabulary. Whereas I don't know someone who's older, like. I don't know what you think of Bernie Sanders, but someone might be able to talk to a, in a richer, um, 
range of keys. Um, yes, I see. Even what, if they're very left wing, yeah, I see what you're saying. Although Bernie Sanders, if you listen to him, it's always the same pitch. It's always the same tone. It's always the same content. It seems. I mean, he's you know he's a very interesting candidate, uh, but he he seems to be you know much more of a 1930s and you know 1930s style. Uh, you know, Democrat talking about labor and capital and, and mm. economic equality. So I don't think he has a particularly broad uh, palette. Um, I think a useful contrast is just between Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton. So uh, Bill, I loved Bill Clinton, and he did things like he said. One of his famous phrases was, uh, "If if you work hard and play by the rules, you should be able to get ahead." It's that simple. This is a notion of fairness that is about proportionality. It's a sense of you you know if you play by the rules, if you have a sense so. Bill Clinton was from the South. He was from Arkansas. Um, he, uh, he knew how to appeal to all the foundations. Uh, and, he, and he won, you know, he was a very effective president. Hillary Clinton, um, I think, didn't make much of a moral appeal. She did a lot on identity politics, which uh, you know, was to the Democratic Party's base, but didn't appeal beyond that. But beyond that, she didn't really play. She didn't touch many moral buttons. And that's why I think she lost. Some people say, oh, it's because she's a woman. I don't think that's true at all. Um, had she been at all charismatic, had she been appealing, very few people on the left were enthusiastic about her. Had there been any enthusiasm on the left, it would have been a landslide. And in terms of this very strange dynamic you've got now between, as you say, a kind of, um, in large parts, racist kind of right and um, a, a left, which is arguably more sectarian than it has been, um, in Britain and in in the US, um, I imagine neither's like painting beautifully in technicolor of your moral palette. Yeah, but right. who do you see as getting the better of it? Oh, you mean the left or the right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so just to be clear, I'm not saying that most people on the right are racist. They really are not. What has changed? So, uh, to clarify things, I find Karen Stenner's work incredibly enlightening. She's an Australian political scientist. And uh, she wrote a book called The Authoritarian Dynamic uh, in 2005. And it's so powerful, the simple idea that there are three psychological types that tend to vote for the right. Um, and so one is what she calls status quo conservatives, mm. which are like Edmund Burke type, you know, be careful about change, be moderate, you know, the past has wisdom. Those are the true conservatives. And I think they have a lot to add. They have great insights. I think they're very valuable, and she does too, very valuable in a democracy. Um, then there's the free market conservatives who are not conservative at all. They're libertarians. Mm. They're more classical liberals, and they vote for the right because they don't want the big state and all the regulation. And then there's, there are the authoritarians. This is a psychological type that is more close-minded, lower IQ, less interested in ideas or education. But here's the cool thing that Stenner contributes. They're not necessarily racist, except when they perceive normative threat. That is, they, not a threat to them, but a threat to the moral order. So if you come out, as Donald Trump did when he first became a candidate, and said, Mexican rapists are pouring over the border, and you make them feel like, oh my God, our, our moral community is being attacked. Um, they become more, not just more racist against Mexicans, but against African Americans and gay people. So uh, there's a, almost like a button that you can push on the head of the authoritarians that makes them really racist and homophobic and willing to support an authoritarian leader and dictator. This is what every authoritarian leader does, is provoke them. Well, guess what? With social media, they're all provoked every day, and the switch mm. will never turn off. So I think this is why American politics on the right now seems more racist, because it used to be a coalition of these three groups, and it still is, but the authoritarians never had a seat at the table before. And now they are enraged, inflamed, 
uh, at more active, and Donald Trump has welcomed them in to the coalition. So I think this is the state. Again, I don't want to impugn my many conservative friends who have nothing to do with the authoritarians. But, no, no, no. But they but are a big part of the coalition now. They're a big part of the coalition. And do you see that coalition is potentially winning for the next few years? I know you said in the very long run, the kind of generational thing doesn't look too good for them. But yeah, like the, yeah. So in the UK as well. Yeah. Right? So so let's see if I can say, can I say, well, you know, I guess some of the dynamics around Brexit are very, very similar. There are many reasons for voting for Brexit, and you know, I would imagine most Brexit voters were, were not racist or not voting because of racism, but clearly some were, and some of the leaders appealed to racist motives. So I think it's very similar in both of our countries. Um, I think that one thing that we can say, a very interesting finding, is that um, there's a sensitive period between about 14 and 22. The big political issues of your time leave an imprint on you that can be seen in your voting record for the rest of your life. So in America, people who were in that age range between 1968 and 72, those were the peak years of our of, of, of unrest and of near revolution, um, they vote Democrat for the rest of their lives. Uh, if they're born a little before or after that p- period, then they don't. They're white people in the, that age range um, vote Republican. So I think that both um, Brexit and, um, and Trump are going to have a long-run influence of pushing young people to the left. And uh, I do think that that was, that's going to give the left a big advantage going forward for decades. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure, Tom. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Okay, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with Jonathan Haight. Rebecca Liu is our producer. And if you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and review, which really does help. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much and goodbye. 